should probably start with a little confession that I didn't just come here uh, to preach, but I knew I could get my worship on. Uh, and I've been here for a week. I kicked it off at Gas Street, and I uh, can think of no place I'd rather be than right here on Sunday morning to worship with you all. It's been a, I've been here before, but it's been a few years, you know? And I'm headed back to Philly tonight. You know, Philadelphia means, the name means the city of love. It's been my home for about 25 years, and sometimes we live up to the name, uh, but not always. I remember one of my friends telling me the first time he got mugged in Philly. Uh, we, most of us have been mugged in Philly, but he said the first time was really interesting because uh, the guy came up to him and said, give me your money. And he sort of tossed his wallet and kind of pieced out, you know, and the guy goes, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I just, I said, give me your money. I just want the money. I'll give you your license and credit cards, all that back. He's like, I don't want to inconvenience you. This isn't, he says, he says, this, this is not New York City. This is Philadelphia, you know, so that's a city of love. Uh, but I, I grew up, uh, we've been building this city in uh, like a, a community on the north side of the Phil, Philadelphia for 25 years. Our neighborhood is called Kensington. It's a little different from your Kensington, but we love it just the same. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's been great. Um, I grew up, though, in, in East Tennessee, and one, one of my best buddies growing up here, I'm going to embarrass you, it's too late now, is Ryan Gherkin and his family here. They're visiting, just happened to be visiting the UK, and so they're here as guests this morning, too. But, um, uh, you know, in Tennessee, it's the Bible Belt. So I grew up, you know, kind of going to church and um, there was stuff I liked, stuff I didn't like, if I'm honest. Um, but there was a moment where, I, mean, I can remember it like it was yesterday, where I heard someone talking about Jesus and had this profound sense of what Jesus did through his life and death and resurrection. They invited us to the altar and I got born again, you know. And there wasn't a ton to do in East Tennessee. So every year we counted the days to that retreat and we'd go and I'd get born again again, uh, you know. And my, my friend Tony Campolo says, I saw a pattern where we came to the altar singing Just As I Am, that old hymn, but then we left just as we were and we kept living, living just like we always had. It was kind of like Jesus became our mascot, but not necessarily that our lives were transforming, right? And I don't know if you get that, but I think in, in some ways in the States, we, we reduced Christianity to just something you believe in. And don't get me wrong, I think the beliefs of our faith are really important, but the more I looked at Jesus, I saw that he didn't just come with a doctrinal statement. He came inviting us to join a revolution that's about embodying God's love in the world in real ways, you know, and I, I kept hearing versions of Christianity that were about going to heaven when we die. And I'm excited about life after death. Uh, we'll party like there's no tomorrow, and there won't be, you know, but at, at the end of the day... I sort of felt like Jesus didn't just come to prepare us to die, but Jesus came to teach us how to live and how to love and how to carry God's justice into the world we're living in, you know? And, and I think a lot of Christians have been promising people life after death. And there's a lot of folks asking, is there life before death, right? Doesn't the gospel have something to say to the brokenness of the world we live in right now? And so, uh, my faith, you know, became more and more not just a way of escaping this world, but something that causes me to engage this world. And the, the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about almost every time he opens his mouth, he talks about the kingdom of God. And it wasn't just something that we're to go up to when we die, but something we're to bring on earth while we live. Amen. 
Like we're to bring it on earth as it is in heaven. So I wanted that, you know. And uh, Ryan and I grew up Methodist. And there's part of the Methodist, past, the, 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 the roots of the Methodist church that are incredibly beautiful. Uh, the co connection of justice and the abolition of slavery and the championing of human rights. But there's also, you know, the, the fire is on the hymnal and the, you know, the, the symbol of the Methodist church. But sometimes it felt like I wanted that fire, not just on the hymnal, but I wanted it in my soul, you know? And so we had some young guys that were in uh, our high school and I heard they were Pentecostals, right? And, you know, I never really, I, I didn't really ever met a Pentecostal that I knew of. So we were sort of thinking like, they believe in miracles. They believe it. They speak in tongues. Kind of weird, right? And uh, so we, well, I went over and I was sort of joking with them. And I said, I heard you guys believe in raising people from the dead and stuff. And they're like, yeah, come on, come to worship with us. And I, I, I got to, you know, admit when I went, I was a little uncomfortable, but I started leaning in and it caught a hold of me. And I got, I had to get rebaptized because the Methodist sprinkling thing didn't count. You had to go all the way under the water and we needed the baptism of the spirit with the fire of God. Uh, you know, so all of that became a part of me. And there was some weird stuff there too. I mean, we, we had this thing called uh, Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. I hope y'all don't have this over here, but uh, it was like, it was these skits that we would do and skits are terrifying in general, but these were really bad where like we were on a bus and the bus would crash and the demons would come and drag all the people that didn't know Jesus to hell. We had pyrotechnics. I mean, it was crazy. My friend, his dad was the devil, and he was real good, you know. So we had the altar call, and I mean, we were, it, it literally scared the hell out of us. I mean, we were like feeling it, you know. We would come forward, people would get, and, and yet then I started to say, you know what? I, I didn't just choose Jesus because I was scared of hell or because I wanted streets of gold and mansions in heaven. I chose Jesus because he's good. I chose Jesus not for what I can get, but for what he gave and for what it can do in the world around us. So I, I spit out some of the bones, but I kept going. And that Pentecostal fire, uh, as you might see, is still shaped me, you know? The, the Methodist background still shaped me. I mean, some of the, the best stuff for justice in our country is still coming out of that root. So I've become sort of this uh, fusion of, of Jesus and justice that I um, I, I started, you know, in college, we, we, we said, you know, I, I was reading the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and going, what if Jesus really meant this? You know, that we're to sell everything we have and give it to the poor, <laughs> right? I'm like, who's doing that? You know, I, I can remember this uh, singer that spoke in our chapel and he goes, um, you know, he was talking to this really evangelical school, this is Rich Mullins, and uh, he was a great singer and songwriter. He goes, you guys are all into that born again thing. And he said, we need to be born again. Jesus says that to a guy named Nicodemus. But if you tell me I've got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, I can tell you that you got to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, because Jesus said that to one guy too. It got really awkwardly quiet, you know, and and then, and then Rich goes, but that's why God invented highlighters, so we can highlight the verses we like. <laughs> And ignore all the other ones. But I, I want to say, I, I think we need a, a new expression of Christianity that's not just highlighting some parts of the Bible, right? But that's going, what if Jesus really meant the stuff he said? Let's read the Sermon on the Mount and say, what if he meant it? So that's what we started doing. And, you know, we're 19 years old and I was in uh, university and uh, we're going, we need to see somebody that's embodying 
the, the, the gospel, not just believing it, but living it. And Mother Teresa was still alive at the time. And, you know, the, we had heard the stories of this incredible Catholic nun, you know, they had left everything to go to Calcutta to serve the poorest of the poor. And uh, she had everything she owned in a box, you know, and she had kind of uh, started lifting people off the streets of India and started these homes. And so we, uh, we thought there, she seems to be taking this thing, giving the gospel a good shot, you know. And so we wrote her a letter and said, we don't know if you give internships in India, but we got a free summer, you know, and, and uh, eventually we didn't hear back from her. So we just started calling nuns on the phone, asking for Mother Teresa's number. And finally, I got this number. I kid you not, I called it and I was expecting like a polite receptionist, you know, missionaries of charity, how can we help you? And I just heard, hello. And it was a really expensive call. It was like $3 a minute. So I'm talking fast. And I said, listen, we're calling from the United States. We're trying to get a hold of the nuns that work with Mother Teresa. We're, we're, we want to learn how to follow Jesus and uh, we need some help. And uh, so do you know the nuns there? And she goes, yeah, this is Mother Teresa. And, uh, and I was like, and I'm the Pope, you know. Uh, and we tell her, we want to follow Jesus. How, you know, can we come work with you? And she said, yeah, come on. And I'm thinking, great, where are we going to sleep? You know, like, what am I going to eat? And I ask her, you know, you got a futon? Uh, you know, I'm like, where, where are we going to sleep? And Mother Teresa says back, God takes care of the lilies and the sparrows. God will take care of you. Don't worry about any of that. Just find your way to India. And I said, great. I hope it works when I tell my mom you said that. But, uh, <laughs> You know, when Mother Teresa, when we got there, you know, I was working in the home for the dying. I was working in the orphanages, doing all this incredible work, but it was all rooted in prayer. You know, it's funny when my evangelical friends tell me that Catholics don't believe in a personal relationship with Jesus. And I'm like, maybe some Catholics, but Mother Teresa called Jesus her lover, her spouse, right? Someone asked Jesus uh, or asked Mother Teresa uh, if she was married. And <laughs> she her, it's a funny question for a nun. Uh, but she, she answered back. She said, well, yes, I am in love. And my spouse can be so demanding sometimes. <laughs> Talking about the sweet Lord Jesus, right? And so every morning we would start our days in prayer. And the prayers, I learned a depth of prayer. You know, growing up in, in the evangelical church, it was all about prayer requests. You know, what we want from God. And that may be a part of prayer. But in India, I learned a deeper part of prayer. Which was not just trying to get God what we want God to do, but trying to get ourselves to do what God wants us to do. To be who God wants us to be in the world. So one prayer that we prayed every morning in India was, Dear Jesus, may every person I come in contact with Feel your presence in my soul. May I leave off your fragrance everywhere I go. Our prayer was literally that we would leave off the scent of Jesus in the world. And uh, every morning, every single morning, we would have communion, you know, which I was thinking, this is a little redundant, you know. I mean, every once in a while in the Methodist church, we'd try and kind of skip out to uh, beat traffic. I'm just saying that because this is a safe place, you know. But like, like that... <laughs> I didn't understand communion, you know? But when I was in India, I was like, we're doing it every morning. Why do we do it every morning? And one of the nuns said, well, you probably heard the saying, we are what we eat. It's like, that's what we're going for. We are what we eat. Like when we uh, participate in communion, we are being transformed and reminded that we are to be what we eat, to be the body of Christ in the world. And uh, uh, so, it, you know, that, that saying that, 
Paul says, the life I live, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me, right? It began to impact me. And the other thing is like, we prayed at five o'clock in the morning, which is not my favorite hour. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 10 o'clock or a noon kind of worshiper, you know, like y'all. And, and, but at five in the morning, I, sometimes my mind would wander as we were praying. And I, I noticed um, Mother Teresa was right in front of me and I noticed her feet had become terribly deformed. And um, I looked at them wondering if maybe she had contracted leprosy or, you know, something, something had happened. And, but I mean, I'm, this is Mother Teresa, so I'm not, not about to ask her, like, what's up with that? You know, like, and, but there's one of the nuns said, have you noticed her feet? And I said, yeah. And she said, her feet are deformed because we get just enough donated shoes for everybody. And there's usually not a le- lot of leftovers. We, we live out of donations, just like the same things that we're giving our neighbors or the same things that we're living on. And so we, uh, uh, she said, and, and, and Mother Teresa goes through all the donated shoes and she finds the worst pair to take them for herself so that uh, it's the kind of honoring the needs of others above her own. And I remember scratching my head, like remembering all of these verses that I had memorized and rehearsed, you know, the love our neighbor as ourself and that one of honoring the needs of others above our own. But I'd never kind of seen it taken that literally, right? That it begins to become a way of life that's different. Uh, in fact, I remember hearing a story of Gandhi when I was in India, Mahatma Gandhi, who uh, they asked him, um, why he, were, why he uh, rode third class, the, the lowest class on all of the trains. They said, why do you ride third class? And Gandhi said, because there is no fourth class. Kind of reorients us, the gospel reorients us, right? And I, I can remember learning that in so many different ways, especially in India. One of the things that I became in charge of was um, throwing a party for the kids on the street. So these were kids, eight years old, 10 years old. They were homeless they begged every day uh, to survive. That's how they made it. And so Mother Teresa said, these kids are really, really special to God. But they haven't always been convinced of that. So we get to convince them of that, right? So uh, we threw a big banquet every Tuesday night. And we'd line up this like royal feast and we'd play games. And I got some like circuit skills in my back pocket. So I busted them out, you know, and we're juggling and turning flips and going crazy. And then one of the kids, several weeks in, he said, he told me it was his birthday, and you could just see his whole face begin to cry because he wasn't going to get anything for his birthday. And, uh, and yet then I, um, you know, it put me in a hard spot because we had strict orders not to play favorites. You know, you can't get a gift for one kid. There's a hundred of them, so don't, don't you know. Uh, I was like, I, I get it, but it's his birthday, you know. So I kind of sneak off, and I get something little, ice cream cones, like 100 degrees, you know, and, and so I get this, uh, that's a lot of Celsius, and so I, like I, I, I get him this ice cream cone, and it's starting to melt, but he, like when I get it, to, give it to him the first time, he's just like mesmerized, right, and then his impulse is this is too good to keep for myself, so he yells at all of his friends, he goes, we've got ice cream! You know, and he brings them all over, and I'm like, I'm in trouble with the nuns now, you know. And but he lines them up, and he goes, "Everybody's gonna get a lick." <laughs> Literally goes down the line, gives every kid a lick, and then he comes full circle to me, and he goes, "We saved you a little bit too, Shane." Dripping like down his hand, yeah. Hundred kids had licked this thing. So anyway, I, I, I went, I went for it, you know. But that kid knew the secret. Right, that Mother Teresa knew that Jesus embodied the best thing to do with the best things in life 
is give them away. And yet it flies in the face of so much that we see in our dominant culture, but also even in the church, right? Sometimes with this self-absorbed wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, that's about what we get from God. And if you give a dollar, you'll get a hundred back. I mean, you know, we got megachurch pastors with bodyguards and televangelists with private planes. I'm not going to go there too much, but we got preachers with sneakers. You know what I mean? We got, we've lost the message, which is you got to give it away. The stuff that we own begins to own us. It begins to change us. As Mother Teresa said, the more stuff you have, the more you hide behind. So Jesus is trying to set us free, right? So I came back, you know, with a fire in my bones. And we, we moved into North Philly. One of the best things I learned from Mother Teresa, she said, Calcuttas are everywhere. If we'll only have eyes to see. So you don't have to go to India to follow Jesus. In fact, it's, sometimes it's easier to love people on the other side of the world than it uh, is on the other side of the town or right on the other side of our, our front doors. And so we came back, you know, with that spirit. And Mother Teresa also, she talks so much about what's important is not how much we do or how big it is, but how much love we put into doing it. So let's do small things with great love. And we, we started doing that, you know, like just sharing meals with folks on the street, uh, uh, showing hospitality to uh, folks coming out of domestic violence. You know, we have a little recovery community for folks recovering from drug addictions. We began to create community gardens. And it's a lot like what Sally and Dave are doing, you know, in their, their neighborhood in East Ham. It's what uh, our friends in Birmingham are doing in, in the Newbegin House and their community there. Uh, and so we just started loving our neighbor. But then there, there also comes a point, and this is why we're, we're talking about the connection of Jesus and justice. There's a point where compassion begins to lead us to justice, right? That part of loving our neighbor is giving food to the hungry. Another part of our love, our, 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 the gospel is asking why people are hungry to begin with, right? Uh, one of my mentors said, we've all heard that saying, you give someone a fish to eat for a day, you teach them to fish to eat for the rest of their life. And he says, but we also have to ask who owns the pond, uh, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, after you lift so many bodies out of the river, you got to go upstream and figure out who's throwing them there. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think of Martin Luther King, and he talked about the Good Samaritan story. And he said, we're all called to be the Good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, we need to do something about the whole road to Jericho uh, because people keep landing in the ditch. And so compassion and justice have to go together, right? Uh, and what happened for me on so many of these issues is we began to see that we've got to love our neighbor, but we also have to change the, the policies that are crushing their lives, as Brother Cornell West, one of our great thinkers in America, also announced two days ago he's running for president. No comment on that. But my brother, he says that, that justice is what love looks like in public. It's, it's how we take our love for individuals and we begin to say, what does it look like to build a society where love reigns, where policies for welcoming immigrants and asylum seekers are not driven by fear and racism, but they're driven by love and compassion. So we started to do that in Philly. Um, you know, one of our uh, first lessons in this was challenging 
the laws that discriminate against the homeless. And so uh, these laws are still surfacing. But in Philly, Philadelphia began to pass laws that made it illegal to sleep in public places, um, illegal to ask for spare change on the streets. One of the worst laws in Philly was a feeding ordinance. It made it illegal to give out food. And we said, you know, as St. Augustine said, an unjust law is no law at all. As the uh, great, you know, uh, d- disciples in the book of Acts said, we, we uphold the law of God even in the face of the laws of man. So we, we said, we need to challenge these, but we need to be shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove. So we said, how are we going to do it? So we, as we prayed about it, we thought, we're going to have a worship service. In the middle of our downtown area, we have a park called Love Park, right? So we actually painted a giant question mark and hung it over the love sign, the iconic love sign in Philly that all the skateboarders know. You know, and so it, it, uh, it said, where is the love? And then we worship Jesus together with our drums and our guitars, and then we serve communion, which was tricky because you're not allowed to give out food. Uh, but the police were all around. They're like, I'm not going to arrest them, you know, I mean. In fact, I think I might need to take communion, you know. And then, then after, after communion, we kept breaking the bread by bringing in some pizzas and stuff, you know. And uh, I was pushing it a little too far. And so we, we did that night after night. We would sleep out in solidarity with our friends who had no homes. And, uh, and our numbers grew. And eventually, um, the police were ordered to surround the park. And they all swarmed in. And they arrested all of us and put us in handcuffs, took us to jail. And we, sur- we, we uh, faced some pretty serious charges. My mom was not happy. <laughs> this is not how I raised you, son. And, uh, uh, but, we, we, you know, there's that scripture that says, don't worry when they drag you before the courts or the magistrates. Like, the Spirit will give you the word. So we said, you know, we're going to rely on the Spirit here. And dozens of us were arrested. And so we were um, on trial. And I had a shirt on that said, Jesus was homeless. And the, the judge, first thing he does, he goes, Jesus was homeless. I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, your honor, in the scripture, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. And the judge goes, you guys might stand a chance. And <laughs> we did. We, as we went to trial, we decided, you know, even though we had these great lawyers that were helping us navigate the legal system, we said, our spokesperson needs to be someone who's lived this. And so our uh, representative of the whole group became Alfonso, who was on the street, and his name was, we, we all knew him as Fonz, because he's smooth, you know, we were like, he's perfect. So Fonz agrees to be our spokesperson. We go to trial, and he stands up and says, your honor, and everybody in the courtroom, I'm speaking on all of our behalf. And I'd like to say, we believe these laws are evil and wrong, and we rest our case. (laughs) All right, keep it simple and sweet, brother. You know, and so uh, the district attorney, the the prosecuting attorney, she was not amused. I mean, she wanted us to go to jail and serve time. She wanted us to pay thousands and thousands of dollars worth of fines. And this was a kicker. She wanted us to have hours and hours of mandatory court-sanctioned community service. No, not that, you know, like, don't, don't make us feed the homeless or something, you know, so we, but we, uh, we ended up uh, in the middle of that court scene, the judge interrupted everything and he said, listen, what's in question isn't whether or not these folk broke, broke the law. It's clear to me that they've been breaking the law. The question, are the laws that we're passing in this city 
that discriminate against some of our most vulnerable people. And he said, if it weren't for people who broke the bad laws, we wouldn't have the freedom that we have. He said, that's what uh, justice is about. From the Boston Tea Party, goes a little different over here, I know, but the Boston Tea Party to the civil rights movement. He said, we would still have slavery if it weren't for people who broke the bad laws. We got the Underground Railroad. We got the history of liberation. He said, these guys are not criminals. They're freedom fighters. And I find them all not guilty on every charge. And then he goes, and how can I get one of those t-shirts? <laughs> so we gave him one. But our, our best lesson in all of that is that Christianity sometimes is about trouble in the waters. Christianity is a, a sometimes about ruffling the feathers in this world because Jesus' way of life is a contradiction to some of the dominant values in our culture, right? That as I look at Jesus and the scripture, the gospel is about the mighty being cast down from their thrones and the lowly being lifted up, the hungry being filled with good things and the rich being sent away empty. That's not Karl Marx. That's the gospel of Luke, right? That's a radical gospel that says if we fall in love with Jesus, it should matter to the poor. It should matter to the marginalized that Jesus's gospel is good news to the poor. If it's not good news to the poor, then it's not the gospel of Jesus. If it's not about welcoming immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers, it's not Christianity. It might have the banner of Jesus, but if it doesn't smell like love, if it doesn't feel like compassion, if it doesn't roll like justice in a mighty water. So what's important is not just what worship does to us, right? But what worship does in the streets that our love, I, I, I began to really recognize that the church is better at making believers than forming disciples. But Jesus didn't come to make believers. He came to form disciples that are signing up for a, a revolution of love, right? The, the scripture says we can have faith to move mountains in Corinthians, but we can have, uh, uh, you know, speak in the tongues of men and of angels. We can do all sorts of miracles and prophecies and fathom all the depths of knowledge. But if we don't have love, it's still empty. I love how my... My friend, uh, Tony Campolo, who found, he's the co-founder of Red Letter Christians. You know, we get our name, incidentally, if you, you, you don't, didn't catch that. Um, some of the old Bibles have the words of Jesus in red, highlighted in red. And so we, we like to say we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. And you've got a little card, I think, on your seats that you can, you can stay in touch with. It's not, it's, for us, it's not about a a brand or an organization. It's about a movement, right? Connecting the dots of folks who love Jesus and love justice, like sides of scissors, we say. that They, they got to go together, right? And there's folks that love Jesus that don't care about justice, and there's folks that care about justice that are not grounded in Jesus. So we, we want to hold them together, and, then, and uh, we'll be down talking to y'all about that. But one of the things that Tony says is, uh, he says, in the end, According to Jesus, in Matthew 25, all of us are going to be gathered before God. And we're going to be asked a few questions. And if Matthew 25 and Jesus are right, they're not just doctrinal questions. It's not that, that Jesus is going to say, okay, virgin birth, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Those doctrines are important. But according to Jesus... 
At the end of time, we will be giving an account of our life. And the questions we will be asked are, when I was in prison, did you come visit me? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? Uh, In the end, if we want to know who the disciples of Jesus are, we can ask the poor. We can ask the incarcerated. And my my prayer and my love for King's Cross is that, that you will be known for that justice flowing out of here, right? That in the end, we are to be a demonstration plot of the kingdom of God on earth that people can see the love of God flowing out of this place, see people who who love justice and worship just uh, love Jesus and walk in the streets for justice, right? That are transforming communities and neighborhoods, welcoming the people that are ostracized. May it be so. Amen. May it be so. Will you pray with me? If you want to, you can stand and uh, let's stand together. And it's a gift to be with you this morning. A gift to worship Jesus with you. And I pray, oh God, that you would first forgive us when we've turned Christianity into just a doctrinal statement. We thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection. And we pray that it would do something to us. That our worship would transform us into revolutionary lovers of the poor and the marginalized. That rivers of of justice would flow. If there's anyone here today, oh God, who is first hearing or experiencing or feeling your love and your your fire for justice, I pray that we would lean in. And maybe there's others of us this morning that have been believers. We've been born again, but we're still figuring out what it means to follow you, to live a life that's marked by your justice. So keep moving in us. Keep moving in us that we might be your hands and your feet. That we would see your kingdom come on earth, on earth, in London, in the UK, in Philadelphia. We would see your kingdom come. Pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.